Okay, today we continue in Isaiah. We will be in Isaiah chapter 49 this morning. And at the end of the lesson last week is what we did. I read you an extended quote from Michael Morales about where Israel was here as we move into a new section, section 49. Uh, excuse me, sec- the section beginning in chapter 49. Where, it talk, where Isaiah is presenting to us the servant of the Lord, the faithful servant of the Lord. Now, God is, has sent Isaiah into the world to bring His Word to the people. He sent many other prophets of the Old Testament uh, into the world. And of course, they were all rejected. And so now He's prophesying about sending His Son into the world. And just as an introduction today, I will be reading out of Luke chapter 20. This is what the people of Israel have to look forward to. I'm going to read verses 9 through 19. Remember, God is sending one prophet into the world after another. They don't listen. They persecute the prophets. And in a seven, eight hundred years from This prophecy, He's going to be sending His Son into the world. And His Son gave Him this parable here in Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 9. And then He, that is Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty handed. And again he sent another servant. And they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty handed. And then he sent a third. And they wounded him also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And that's where I'm going to stop reading right there. So this is the attitude of the religious leaders in Israel. They did not do what they were supposed to do. They did not listen to God's servants, which were the prophets in the Old Testament. And then when the prophet par excellent came, when Jesus Christ came, they mistreated Him too and they killed Him. And therefore, they bring the destruction of Old Covenant Israel upon them. So, that's what the future servants of God have to look forward to. That is the mindset of the religious people. And we will need to keep that in mind as we look through these next seven or eight, nine chapters in Isaiah. So this morning we will be starting in Isaiah 49. And I will have 
our pastor here to read us verses 1 through 7. Reading from the ESV. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Yahweh the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right hand is with Yahweh, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord Yahweh says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the, the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of Yahweh, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Okay, in your notes, I think we covered a little bit of this last week. This is the second of the servant, servant songs in Isaiah. Remember, there's four of them. The others are found in 42, 1 through 9, 54 through 9, and 52.13 to 53.12. Derek Kidner makes this statement. After chapter 42, the question of Israel's unfitness has become more and more acute. The coming chapters will resolve the tension not by this servant's dismissal or, improve, not, or improvement, but by the clear emergence of the true servant whose mission will be the first, first of all to Israel first. So we will see that Jesus Christ is sent to Israel first. And then in your notes, Isaiah is calling for the whole world to listen to him in verse 1. He is announcing to them that a Savior is coming, which is covered in verses 2 through 7. Christ will be the true and faithful Israel. Because he says in verse 1, Listen, O coastlands, to me. Take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix or the inward parts of my mother. He has made mention my name. So a Savior is coming, and He is described in these verses. Verse 2, He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand, He has hidden me. He has made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. Let's have some verses looked up. Shall you look up Hebrews 4, 12. Bud, Revelation 1, 16. Mike, Revelation 19, 15. Um, Jill, Jeremiah 23, 29. And um, sometimes names escape me. Laura, Laura, Second <laughs> Corinthians ten three through five. Okay, 
Now, um, in your notes, it says here, God's Messiah will be equipped with a very potent spiritual weapon. In verse 2, it says, He has made my mouth like a sharp two-edged sword. We see this in other places. Uh, this idea of the Word of God being a sharp two-edged sword. Hebrews 4.12, can you tell us what that says? For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Right. There's a reason we're reading these verses, and we will get to that in just a minute. A practical reason. <clears throat> Revelation. Did I say one sixteen for somebody? One sixteen. Yeah. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So when John receives his vision of Jesus Christ, from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. Revelation 19.15 From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Okay? So we see this over and over again. Jesus has a sharp two-edged sword proceeding from his mouth. And we have as a weapon ourselves, we have His Word. Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine. Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? His Word is like a hammer that breaks rock in pieces. Alright, so this is a pretty potent weapon. Jesus Christ was equipped with it. He spoke the very words of the Father and we are equipped with it in the Bible. Second uh, Corinthians ten three through five. Okay. Um, we are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious, rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. So our primary spiritual weapon is the Word of God. Uh, we, don't, we don't use carnal weapons, weapons of the flesh. We use the weapon that God provided for us, just like Jesus Christ did. Um, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. God has given us this weapon. He has given us this weapon in His Word. And... So we need to keep in mind that we need to use this word. And this is what I can't understand about evidential apologetics. Why do would anyone start in proclaiming God's glory or defending God or defending the Bible and using anything other than our prescribed spiritual weapon, which is the Word of God? There is no reason for ignoring God's Word 
whenever we are evangelizing or defending the faith. I just think it's such... To ignore this kind of a weapon, it's like a hammer. It comes down on a stone and crushes it to pieces. And we have so many evangelists, so many apologists that don't use it. Charles? Well, I mean, the unbeliever doesn't accept it. Shouldn't we start on common ground? No. No. No, Jesus is Lord. We don't start on common ground. Well, there is no common ground. That's the point. Yes. No neutrality. Yes, there's not. <clears throat> well, there's a little bit of common ground because they're created in the image of God. There's no neutral ground. No <laughs> neutral ground, yeah. I get those mixed up all the time. But there is a little bit of common grounds. If it wasn't, then there's no need to talk to them at all. But the common ground is the fact that they are created the image of God and they can't totally destroy that image and that's where we meet them. But there's nothing neutral. That's why we use the Word of God at all times. It's interesting. I don't really know what to make of this. I just want to throw this out to you. But we see over and over again that it's a sharp two-edged sword. Let's look at... uh, Genesis 3, chapter 24. I'm not going to really comment on this. I'm just going to read it to you and emphasize one part of it. Let me get my right book here. Exodus 19. Genesis 3:24. We read, I'm beginning verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him, that is Adam, out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man. And he placed cherubim on the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. We have a sharp two-edged sword. Even the cherubim guarding the way to the life to the tree of life, did not have a two-edged sword. That sword they had had to turn every which way. We have an even greater weapon than the cherubim had to keep man out of the Garden of Eden. Um, I remember one theologian. He's local. I sat under him for a while under Christian counseling. Rod Mays was his name. Yeah, still is. And um, he said, he used this analogy. He said, what if a person comes up to you with a knife in the parking lot and says, give me all your money. And you pull out your gun. And he says, I don't believe in guns. <laughs> so, well, do you put the gun back in your holster or whatever? No, you make a believer out of them. You use your weapon. So that's the same. We Just because somebody doesn't believe in the Word of God, that doesn't mean we don't use it. We make a believer out of it. The Geneva Bible in a footnote referring to the two edges says that the first one is virtue and the other one is efficacy. And of course flame, you can think of purifying gold or silver by heat dross coming to the surface so that separates virtue from unrighteousness and the efficacy is 
history. You know, the church, the kingdom will rule. Yep. Yes. Well, if you just think about the sword, it's it's a great analogy. A, a one-edged sword, you can only swing one way. A yeah. two-edged sword, you can cut somebody's head off this way and that way without turning the sword, so it's a lot more efficient. Yeah. But our faith is not what it should be, right? And how many times we don't do what we should do with God's Word. It's like a hammer coming down on a stone and shattering it. Okay. Anything else on that? I'm going to Charles' comment and yours about neutral, uh, not neutral ground, common ground. We don't need to give up science. You know, the evolutionists have claimed science, and many Christians think that that is not common ground or, or neutral ground anymore. You know, it's a matter of our worldview, how the physical evidences get interpreted to God's glory rather than to man's understanding. Christians don't put away science. They don't put away philosophy. I mean, they use these things. They're tools. They're not authoritative. But they are tools that we use. We use science as a tool. We use... Philosophy is a tool, argumentation, logic, but they are not ultimate. They are tools. The authority comes from God's Word. Okay, good comments. All right, verses 3 to 4, it is revealed that Jesus will be declared to be God's true servant. Um, and he said to me <clears throat> that you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord. My work is with my God. Now, Israel was a failure. But God is sending His true servant. Uh, and He will give God glory. That's your uh, blanks. God's true servant and He will give God glory. Now that's what the nation of Israel was created for. To give God glory uh, and to be God's true servant. However, they were miserable failures. And that's why in John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine. Yeah. So verse 4, that's Isaiah talking about himself. right? Yeah, ultimately commentators say this. Jesus Christ too. I mean, it's just kind of typological of Jesus. Because, I mean, while He was on earth, He had, what, 12 disciples and a few other followers, and that was about it. It wasn't until He sent down His Holy Spirit that we had many conversions. So the false witness is Israel. Israel was a false witness. They never understood their mission. As we see in the next thing that says, the next blank bullet, that he will not get a good response from those he comes to. 
And Isaiah was warned that nobody was going to listen to him. And John 1.11 tells us that Jesus was rejected by his own. So God's servants never got a good reception. And then the result will be found in Matthew 21.43, which tells us Jesus says to the leaders of Israel, the nations, the uh, kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you and given to a nation that bears fruit. So <clears throat> Israel was a miserable failure. They did not understand their, that they had a great commission too, that they were supposed to be priests to God, that they were supposed to bring the Gentiles in, and they just were a miserable failure. So, but Jesus was going to replace them and be the true Israel, the faithful Israel. And so Jesus finally announced in Matthew 21, 43, I'm through with you, old covenant Israel. The church is going to be my people, my covenant people. Okay, verses 5 through 6. Does anybody have anything else on that? And verse 5 says, And now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be His servant? Um, to bring Jacob back to Him so that Israel is gathered to Him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord. My God shall be my strength. Indeed, He says, Is it too small of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So it's what we have here in your notes in verses 5 through 6. The Messiah considers it too light of a thing to bring just Jacob or Israel back. He's not coming just to restore them. His redemption will be worldwide. Kim, if you look up for us, Acts 1.8 and Elaine, Acts 13.47. And I'll tell you when to read. So in these verses, um, Jesus says that he, His redemption is going to be worldwide. It's too small of a thing that I should just raise up the tribes of Jacob. Uh, Israel, your servant Israel in the Old Covenant had the Great Commission, as we've looked at before. They failed miserably, but the Great Commission will be carried out in me. And we see in Acts 1.8, what does Jesus say there? That ye shall receive power of the Holy Ghost, and he shall come on you. And you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. The uttermost part of the earth. See, when Jesus is crucified, he's raised again on the third day. He ascends into heaven, and he sends down the promised Holy Spirit. And through that Holy Spirit, the nations will be baptized. And we read in, let's see, what was it, Acts 13.47? Yeah, Acts 13.47. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's exactly what Old Covenant Israel was supposed to be. It was a light to the Gentiles. But they weren't. Jesus would be the light to the Gentiles and bring salvation to the ends of the earth. He will be the 
new and true Israel. Finally, he notes in verse 7, reveals that God's servant will be despised, but then he will be highly honored. What was the first one? Despised. And, um, Pastor, since you're back, if you look up for us, Isaiah 66, 23 and 20, 22 through 24. Alright. God's servant will be despised, and then he will be highly honored. In Isaiah 66, 22, to the end of, of the book. Ready? Yeah. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord Yahweh. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So what we have here is... Jesus being highly honored. He has been exalted to the highest place. And now we're in the new heavens and the new earth. And the church, His people will have dominion. And they'll go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against them. The wicked will be Turned up the way of the wicked will be turned upside down, be destroyed. Old covenant Israel was a miserable failure. New covenant Israel will be a success, bringing the salvation of God to the very ends of the earth. The dominion mandate will be carried out. Okay, any other comments, questions on those verses? Seven, first seven verses. In Isaiah 49. All right, if not, I'll have Michelle read verses 8 through 16 for us. Thus says the Lord, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages that you may say to the prisoners, Go forth to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the roads, and their pastures shall be on all the desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water he will guide them. I will make each of my mountains a road, and my highway shall be elevated. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west, these from the lands of Sinem. Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your sons shall make haste. Okay, that's good. That's that's what we'll get. All right, in these verses, Yahweh makes it clear 
that their salvation comes through the servant he is promising, which will be, of course, Jesus Christ, as we see in verse 8. That is a way of salvation, and Jesus himself says to his disciples that no one comes to the Father but through me. He is the only Savior of men. He's the Savior of the world. And in your notes, he will come at the appointed time. In the acceptable time, it says, or in the favorable time, I have heard you. And the day of salvation, I have helped you. So Jesus, in the fullness of time, in the appointed time, comes according to God's will to be the true servant of Yahweh. Um, they are now in darkness. The people of God are now in darkness at this time when Isaiah is prophesying. But they will eat and drink. According to verses 9 and 10, they will prosper. And um, so better times would be ahead. The bad times eventually will go away, but it won't be until the new covenant. And they will be led by God he will lead them to springs of water. He will guide them. He'll feed them. He'll do everything necessary for them. And be accompanied by Gentiles. Verse 12. Which I'm sure that the Jews of the Old Covenant were not too fond of. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west and from the uh, and these from the land of Sinim. Um So the Gentiles will come. Israel never understood the fact that God's plan would eventually be for the Gentiles. And they would all be comforted by God. Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth. Break out in singing. The Lord has comforted His people. We see that at the very beginning in Isaiah 40, verse 1. And he'll have mercy on the afflicted. <clears throat> then, and in verse 13 that I just read, the whole creation is commanded to sing and shout with joy because of the good news of redemption. These good news of, that God has been telling them of their redemption, their reaction should be shouting for joy, making a joyful noise unto the Lord. And we see this kind of language and comfort of comfort and joy all over. Again, in Isaiah, we're not going to look these up, but 44, 23, 40, verse 1, 42, 10 through 13, and 51, 3. <clears throat> these people should be rejoicing in the Lord and the redemption that has been proclaimed by Isaiah and the other prophets. And yet all they're doing is planning on killing them. They should have received the news of Jesus with great joy. And they didn't do it. So this joy is a mark of God's people in Old Covenant and New Covenant times. Philippians 4.4 tells us rejoice always. Galatians 5.22 shows us that joy is a fruit of, an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. So we are to rejoice always. That's what Paul said. That's what I'm thinking. But Romans 12.15 says to weep with those who weep. Now what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to rejoice or are we supposed to weep? 
Just thought I'd throw that out to you, see if anybody can straighten my mind up. Yeah, both. We're commanded to do both. We have that joyful attitude, but we're supposed to weep with those who weep also. And um, verse 14, this will be as far as we get, shows the attitude of Israel had during Isaiah's day. The Lord had forsaken they thought that the Lord had forsaken them and then had forgotten them. And then the Lord replied that this is utterly impossible. Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. And God says, yeah, just like a woman can forget her nursing child and have compassion on the son of her womb. He says, I will not forget you but I have inscribed you on the palms of my hand. And your walls are continually before me. John Calvin makes this comment on this verse, and this is where we'll wrap it up. Calvin says, What amazing, amazing affections does a mother feel toward her offspring, which she cherishes in her bosom, suckles on her breast, and watches over with tender care, so that she passes sleepless nights she wears herself out by continued anxiety and forgets herself. And this carefulness is manifested not only among men, but even among savage beasts, which though they are by nature cruel, yet in this respect are gentle. So God is telling them, I will no more forget you than a mother would of her uh, babies, of her baby who she would virtually die for. That's my commitment to you, O Israel. Alright, that is it for today. You won't get any more information out of me today. Anybody have anything to add to this? You're saving something for next week. Yeah, I got a little something left. Yeah. Michael, you go ahead and close us in prayer, please.